LA CITY COUNCIL IS EXPECTED TO VOTE TODAY ON MORE RENTER PROTECTIONS. IF IT PASSES, IT WILL SET A THRESHOLD FOR HOW MUCH TENANTS OWE IN RENT BEFORE BEING EVICTED. Renters are feeling the squeeze as costs across the country continue to skyrocket. Today, the White House announced a new plan to fight rising prices. And how a new Biden administration plan announced Wednesday aims to make rent more affordable and protect tenant rights. Nationwide rent control that some of them want, is that right? Well, it's a bad word, Stuart, rent control, you know. But yeah, that's pretty much what it would amount to. It would be limiting the amount of the ability to charge rent. Yeah, it's uh, Democratic lawmakers, uh, a group of 50 uh, senators and congressmen who sent uh, President Biden a letter, and I think we've got the letter. Uh, they ask him for timely executive action now. They want him to take executive action to address the historically high rental costs and housing instability. Welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Kavanaugh. So over the past few weeks, we've been discussing tenant protections that hit Los Angeles, and we've also touched on these new federal recommendations around renters' protections. Today, we're diving into both topics, getting into the nitty-gritty of what LA has come up with, some of the controversy surrounding President Biden's announcement, and also what that federal push could mean for states such as New York. Right. We're not seeing any new tenant protections to come out of New York, but the state did pass a ton of new tenant laws in 2019. So we'll go over what tenant advocates are still pushing for in the state and what landlords really don't want to see happen in the city. First, some of the big stories last week. And I think we have to start off with Adam Newman. Yeah, definitely. So as a refresher, Newman is the ousted CEO of WeWork. He got booted in 2019. Flash forward a few years and he's back with a real estate venture. Yep, it's called Flow. He actually released some details about what the company does, yeah? Sort of. In a very token Adam Newman way, very ethereal, big picture, idealistic. <laughs> this is what he said at a closed-door investor event organized by Andres and Horowitz, which is the VC firm that's backing Flow. So, number one, management company, branded technology first. Number two, real estate asset management, a company that can buy real estate and asset manage real estate. Number three, financial services. And the fourth pillar is this mechanism that's going to take some of the value and share it with the value creators. Uh, that sounds like jargon. <laughs> take some of the value and share it with some of the value creators. What, what do we think that means? Well, he goes on to kind of explain it. And then if we are able to take this value creating mechanism and share with the residents a portion of the value, it's going to make them feel ownership. And it's not just ownership, I feel like I'm part of something. It's I actually own part of something. And again, the word ownership is a, is a very complicated word, especially in this place. But if there's perceived value, and if that value appreciates over time, then I feel like I'm part of a community. Basically, he seems to want renters to feel like owners. Okay, so will they have equity in their apartments? No, they will not. Renters will not accrue any equity in the units and they won't have the opportunity to buy them either. And a lot of journalists and VCs on Twitter were confused by his remarks. He also said this. And a very funny example that we like to give is if you're in your apartment building and you're a renter and your toilet gets clogged, you call the super. If you're in your own apartment and, you're, and you bought it and you own it and your toilet gets clogged, you take the plunger. 
And it's, it's, it's the difference when feeling like you own something to just feeling like you're renting from being trans transactional to actually being part of a community. So plunging your own toilet is going to make you feel like an owner. I thought having those sorts of amenities was what makes renting attractive to most people. Apparently, Newman doesn't think so. I saw this tweet that was like, tell me you've never rented an apartment without telling me you've never rented an apartment. <laughs> so anyway, more stories are definitely going to come out of this if we get anything further. Okay, eyes on that. So we are smack in the middle of earnings season, and I think it's fair to say some of the most striking results have come out of the tech world. I'm looking at Google and Meta here. Right. We've chatted about how tech companies are no longer the darlings of the office market. They're not the ones taking up all this office space anymore. Mm -hmm. They've dialed it back. So Google said it would spend $500 million this quarter to break some of its office leases and consolidate Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, spent $1.88 in the fourth quarter to consolidate its footprint. Microsoft also reported a $1.2 charge from December through February of this year. That's related to cutting down office space. And it said it would be looking to rid itself of more square footage throughout the year. And of course, there's the Twitter office debacles in San Francisco, which you got into a few weeks ago. So just across the board, tech companies are really pulling back. Yeah, and it doesn't sound like we're hearing much good news on the office front. Related companies, fund management arm and its partner, Bentel Green Oak, are walking away from a small office campus in Long Island City. They're handing over the keys. The developers had converted a number of warehouses into two seven-story buildings, but the campus has sat vacant for six years. Ooh. Yeah, just the latest sign of distress across the office market, I guess. And one more piece of news to come out of New York. The city is negotiating with James Dolan's MSG Entertainment to keep Madison Square Garden as is. Interesting. Was there some sort of redevelopment plan? <laughs> yeah. So this has been going on for years. The state wants to renovate and expand Penn Station to create 18 million square feet of commercial space and add almost 1,200 new apartments around the station. Penn Station is right next to Madison Square Garden, of course. Madison Square Garden has filed an application to renew its special permit to operate the arena, and the city has filed documents that would ensure the arena's operation doesn't interfere with any future improvements made to Penn Station. Ah, uh, so like a protection almost? Yeah, even though it's still unclear how the arena will actually interact with the new plans for Penn Station. Got it. So obviously there's a lot more stories, but let's just jump right into our topic for today. The tenant protections put into place because of the pandemic were set to expire at the end of the month. But now the L.A. City Council has just voted to give renters more help. So on renter protections, let's start in L.A. where we've seen the most news. We can first back up to 2020 at the start of the pandemic. So it's March 16th, 2020, really days after offices, stores, everything shut down across the country. I'm sure we remember this well. March 16th, we get this order from the city of L.A. The city bans landlords from evicting both residential and commercial tenants in cases where they were affected financially by the pandemic. Right. So an eviction moratorium similar to what we saw in New York and a bunch of other states around the country and federally, eventually. Yeah, very similar. Landlords couldn't evict on the basis that their tenant hadn't paid rent because they were, for example, laid off as a result of the pandemic. They also added just cause protections, which means that landlords can't pursue evictions if the tenant wasn't actually at fault for something. OK, so how is that enforced? 
On proving whether, you know, you were suffering financially from the pandemic, tenants had to fill out this form. It was pretty simple. You had 15 days to fill it out after you received it. And you just had to sign and attest to the fact that you lost income because of the pandemic. Or, for example, you had more expenses related to health issues or child care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. We had something similar in New York. It, it was a hardship declaration. And I know landlords, you know, they were not thrilled about it because it means that they couldn't get paid. I imagine in L.A. there was a similar reaction. Yeah, landlords were definitely not thrilled about it. It was this huge relief for renters, so many of whom were laid off at the start of the pandemic. Think about hospitality workers, but also essential workers who were at much higher risk of getting sick. They had hospital bills. And this moratorium said, you know, it gave them a priority. It said, take care of those first, and then you can take care of your rent. But at the same time, it was this massive blow to residential landlords. They had no real recourse anymore. And for a long time, there was no end in sight. L.A. kept extending the eviction moratorium every few months. Hmm. How long did it end up being in place for? Until about two weeks ago. Wow. Wow. That's a long time. Three years. Okay. So for context, New York's moratorium extended through January 2022, and people were up in arms about that. Yeah. So in LA, they just kept extending it. And in part, I think it was because they knew they had to replace it with something. The city council was also dealing with an election and some internal issues, but it was pretty hell-bent on enacting tenant protection legislation to help soothe voters. You know, they didn't want to say, we're taking this away from you and you'll be left with nothing. And they also didn't want this wave of evictions. If the moratorium expired, so would these just cause eviction rules. I know that they were expecting this kind of a similar thing in New York, but they never actually saw this big wave. The thing is, most apartments in the city of L.A. already qualify for just cause protections. Okay, so the city already had just cause. So before this eviction moratorium, just cause only applied to any apartment buildings built before 1978. It's connected to rent-stabilized units in the city. Why before 1978? The regulation was enacted in 1979, which is basically the last time L.A. saw any new tenant protections come into play. Wow. Okay, so 44 years ago. So how many apartments did that version of Just Cause cover? It's definitely more than I expected. According to U.S. Census data, it's about 75 percent of the city's multifamily units. And the state of California has just protections, too. In 2019, the state enacted the Tenant Protection Act, which introduced just cause statewide. But there were a lot of exemptions, so it didn't apply to everything. For example, single family homes were exempted and so were units built in the last 15 years. The act also introduced limitations on annual rent increases, but both of those categories that I just mentioned were exempt from that too. So a lot of apartments in the city of L.A. were already protected by just cause before this eviction moratorium. But the moratorium handed out just cause protections to essentially the entire city for three years. So I don't think city council was ready to go back to what it was before. Right. They don't want to strip away what they've given. Exactly. So so what did they end up doing? So back to the present, they knew that they couldn't keep extending the moratorium, right? It's not a long-term solution. And after the last extension, it was set to expire at the end of January. So they quickly convened and came up with this package. Emphasis on quickly. Here's council member Bob Blumenfield. This is something that we've all been very focused on. We're poised to greatly expand renter protections in the city of Los Angeles. I know we are all here around this horseshoe very excited about that. Normally, we have a lot more time to vet 
this, but we are under the gun because the moratorium is going away and we want to get something in place right away. So first, they introduced just cause for all types of multifamily rental housing. So now it'll apply to single family homes and units built after 1978. It also covers everything built in the last 15 years. So it goes further than the statewide legislation that was passed in 2019. Got it. So under that legislation, what are the reasons a landlord can evict a tenant? So there are 14 reasons. The most common is still if the tenant has defaulted on paying rent or if they're causing damage to the unit. But landlords can also file eviction if they intend to take back the property as their primary place of residence or if they seek to convert the property into some sort of non-residential use or affordable housing. Okay. What about demolition? I feel like that sort of fits in there. Yeah, that counts as just cause too. Or if a landlord wants to substantially remodel the property. Um, In terms of, you know, things you can't evict for, I thought it was interesting. You can't evict tenants who have unauthorized pets. So say you have a cat and you don't disclose it or any tenants who have added residents who aren't listed on the lease. So, for example, if you move your boyfriend in, but he's not on the lease, you can't a landlord can't file for eviction. So is there anything else in this tenant protection package um, that we haven't mentioned yet? Yeah. So they also gave a timeline for tenants to pay back any rent that they owed during the eviction moratorium. So tenants who owed rent from March 2020 to September 2021 will have until August 1st of this year to repay the back rent. And then for any rent owed between October 2021 and January 2023, they'll have until February of next year to pay it off. So that should give some ease to landlords. They should get paid back. Okay. And if they don't get paid back within that time frame, that's when they can file to evict? Yes. Got it. All right. So eviction for non-payment of rent, looking at that, is there some sort of threshold for how much rent a tenant owes before they can actually be evicted? Yeah. So this comes into effect in mid-March, but they have to owe more than one month of what's called fair market rent. Okay, that's interesting. So it's not actually tied to what they're paying every month? No, it's a figure that's determined by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. So for fiscal year 2023, that's $1,747 for a one-bedroom unit in L.A. So if your monthly rent is more than that, but you fail to pay $1,800, a landlord could file for an eviction. Hmm. Okay. Anything else? Yeah. So the last part is that landlords will have to pay relocation costs if they raise rents by more than 10 percent on a unit. But given most apartments in L.A. are already subject to rent control laws from that 1979 ordinance and the 2019 state law that I mentioned before, it's really only covering a small portion of more units. It'll apply to 84,000 units that were built after 2008. So a little bit of an extension, but not, you know, sweeping kind of rent control across the board. Basically, if landlords do raise rents by more than 10%, the landlord has to pay the tenant three times the fair market rate, that's the HUD figure that I talked about before, for relocation assistance, plus $1,411 in moving costs. So if you do the math on it, take that $1,747 figure from HUD, that's a total of $6,652 that the landlord will have to pay to relocate someone. Yeah, I mean, I guess that could be a deterrent. Yeah, they're kind of saying, fine, you can raise rents, but you're going to have to pay for it. And the math might make sense for some landlords, but probably not for most. And 
landlords will probably just try to raise it under that threshold. So it's 10% or the consumer price index. So a measure of inflation plus 5%, whatever is higher. And landlords will probably just try and raise rents just under that limit so they don't have to, so that moving assistance doesn't kick in. Yes, I can definitely see that happening. (laughs) Okay, so how are landlords feeling about this tenant protection package? It does seem like, you know, there's this patchwork of laws and it's covering a lot. Yeah, this statement pretty much sums it up. Here's Daniel Yukelson, who runs the Apartment Association of Greater Los Angeles, which advocates for landlords. Well, I call it stealing. And uh, it's going to catch a lot of people that own single-family homes, condominiums, and these newer high-rise luxury apartment buildings off guard. They're going to have to deal with these mountains of regulations. You know, some poor retired couple that has owned a single-family home for 30 years and wants to downsize and rent out an apartment someplace else and rent out their home to avoid capital gains taxes. Now they're going to have to deal with these mountains of regulations and if they ever decide to move back into their house, they're going to have to pay, you know, up to $22,000 for that pleasure. Yeah, definitely not happy. Okay, so that's it. No council reconvening or anything? Yeah, that seems to be it. So all of these changes, you know, clearly shaking the L.A. rental market. And then the federal government enters the chat. In late January, the Biden administration rolls out this package of recommendations with the intent of boosting tenant protections. And it's basically an acknowledgement that rents are way too high and there needs to be some type of added regulation to create more affordability in the market. Okay. Was there any impetus for this? Because it feels like Biden's a little late to the party. Like national rents started rising in April 2021, which is nearly two years ago. And we've seen double digit growth since the summer of 2021. No, that's absolutely true. Um, And I mean, the White House, to be fair to it, has been looking at this for a bit. It released the Housing Supply Action Plan in May. That was supposed to boost production. In August, the Senate also held a hearing on affordability in the housing market. The shortage of housing also means rents rents are going up for pretty much everyone. Rents are up 15% nationally compared to a year ago. Some cities like Austin, Texas, or Senator Menendez on this committee, his city of Newark, our rents are up more than 25%. When rents rise, it makes everything in someone's life just a little bit more precarious. More and more families are one emergency away from losing their home. That was Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown. But I think part of the catalyst for Biden's plan was actually this letter that Senator Elizabeth Warren sent just after the new year. Okay, what happened there? So she is saying the same thing in the letter. She's saying the rent's too high. She's blaming landlords for prioritizing profits over tenants. Then she lays out these directives to fix the problem. The one that makes the biggest splash is this ask that Biden direct the Federal Housing Finance Agency, so that's the body that regulates Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans, to implement just cause eviction, which is a, you know a version of what we just talked about in L.A., And these, quote, anti-price gouging protections, which to folks in the industry is just code for rent control. Wow. Okay. That seems like it would be a huge step for the government. Federal rent control. Is that legal? 
<laughs> yeah. So that was the rub. Some critics, like I was reading through articles about it. Some critics said it would be outside the agency's purview, um, the FHFA, that is. And then other groups have brought up that rent control federally would conflict with state policies. So that would be a cluster. So just given those complications, the White House ends up shying away from that level of intrusion. And what it does instead is release this item called a blueprint for a renter's bill of rights. That sounds very non-committal. <laughs> yes, it is. So really the biggest step that the blueprint takes is to direct the FHFA to gather information on ways to tie tenant protections into these federally backed mortgages. So any landlord with a government loan would have to adhere to any caps on rent hikes, as an example. But this is all hypothetical, right? Yeah, there's no obligation, no demand. It's just a first step really is saying, look, we're going to have this agency do some research and see what comes up. And the rest of the blueprint basically takes the same approach. It's like, Hold meetings with tenants, have HUD, that's the Federal Housing Department, propose a new rule that would make it so public housing authorities would need to give notice before pushing for an eviction. And again, like propose a rule. It's not like roll something out. I guess we could think of it as direction, but several degrees removed from actual change. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. So what do landlords think about this? They're not pumped because they're of the mind that more regulation is the equivalent of more problems. I spoke with the new president of the National Multifamily Housing Council, Sharon Wilson-Gino, about the industry's take. This new initiative, it seems to be coming out of some really unusual market conditions that were happening post-COVID. But like any market um, coming out of a, a really... Uh, disruptive time, both in terms of COVID generally, but also adding the federal government's initiative around the the uh, eviction moratorium. Those were two very disruptive things that have taken a while to sort of smooth out. Um, and we are already seeing that happening. Rents are already going down nationally. Supply that was in the pipeline that was delayed by COVID is already coming on board. So we're going to see a dip in rents already. And, and that, that market is already smoothing itself out. So I, I think the federal uh, effort here is really, um, there, was a, there was a spike moment in time this, this summer um, that situation is already resolving, and it's really a response to something that happened six months ago as the result of COVID. And, um, you know, it's something that as the market changes and moves, uh, it seems to me should be rethought. And what about the role of states in this? Like classically, haven't tenant protections or rent control measures fallen under state and local purview? Yes. And Biden acknowledges this. So as a sort of accompaniment to the Renter's Bill of Rights, he drops this resident-centered housing challenge. And that's calling on state and local governments and organizations during the spring of 2023 to build on their own policies to make things better for renters. But again, this is a nudge. It is not a binding demand by any means, but it does come with some commitments from specific groups. So NMHC, for one, said it would identify ways to help renters build credit, disseminate information for tenants dealing with financial problems, and offer a new resource hub on its site. Right. I can see some states, you know, agreeing with this, but other kind of very pro-business, maybe pro-landlord states kind of ignoring this altogether. 
But what's the sentiment around incentivizing state action? Do multifamily trade groups like NMHC think that top-down pressure is going to move the needle on New York, for example, with good cause? Yeah, possibly. So here's Sharon again. It might, uh, but you know, states like New York and other states um, should think long and hard about what the effects might be of making change, again, disrupting a market that needs investment. And um, it, 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 I think many of us are still struggling with, you know, we have very strong data. It has been proven over and over again that we have an undersupply of housing in this country. Um, we need uh, three to four million units to catch up um, post the 2008 uh, great financial crisis. It, if, if we focus on disruption to that market, especially in certain locations, so if New York enact something, but private investment will look elsewhere where they don't have that same disruption. So I think there's already impacts in certain states that have done that where there is not, um, the level of investment uh, is not going to be as great in the future and we need that investment. So what I get from this is it sounds like Sharon is saying, even if New York feels like it should roll out instant solutions like good cause eviction, it needs to be careful about manipulating the market. And as a representative of multifamily owners, she is advocating for more housing, not restrictions on revenue streams. Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, even as she is sounding the alarm around how new policies such as just cause eviction can affect investment, some states that were already well aware of that are actually looking at those eviction protections again. And I think what you said about instant solutions here is key. Like in New York, we've seen this commitment to build more affordable housing, right? It's come out of the governor's state of the state. Mayor Eric Adams has talked about it. But tenant advocates' critique is that people are suffering now. They need relief now. Okay. So where are we seeing states consider those types of instant protections? Boston is one of them, which is interesting because Massachusetts outlawed rent control nearly 30 years ago, but the mayor of Boston, Michelle Wu, wants state lawmakers to revise that law so cities like Boston could enact their own policies. And other states are considering similar measures because, and I didn't know this before researching for this episode, but the majority of the U.S., 32 states, have just flat out banned rent control. Wow. Yeah, I guess that's going back to what I was saying earlier. It's hard for me to imagine certain states abiding by this and going a little bit further than what Biden said, if at all. So are there any other states or localities that have seen this push for new protections? Yeah. So last year, actually, NMHC found that at least 19 state legislatures had rent control proposals and combined with local measures. It was the biggest push the group had seen in the past decade for some sort of tenant protection. And then since the start of this year, we've seen bills in six states that would lift laws like the ones in Massachusetts that give those states preemptive authority over rent control. So those bills are coming in Minnesota, New Hampshire, New Mexico, South Carolina, Virginia, and Washington. So we can definitively say that there is this nationwide push for change. And I know rent control is really hated by landlords in the multifamily industry because they say it disrupts the market. I hear this all the time in L.A. Um, where the city is facing this huge housing shortage. And, you know, investors say all the time, well, if you keep enacting regulations, no one's going to actually want to build here. And eventually rents are going to keep rising because if you have limited supply, you know, rents keep going up. It's this vicious cycle. There's this quote that just like cuts to the core of that argument. The, 
a Swedish economist who won the Nobel Prize, S.R. Lindbeck, said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, rent control is the best way to destroy a city apart from bombing it. So the thought among detractors and most economists at this point is that rent control, as you said, drives property owners and developers out of the market because they know they can't raise rents, and it just leads to less housing production and worse affordability. Right. I know in New York, these arguments have cropped up that often rent control departments have gone to people who don't actually need them. I read recently that Mia Farrow was paying $2,900 for this rent controlled 11 room apartment on Central Park West. Yeah, because she'd inherited it from her mother. So those succession rights, they keep these amazing deals in the family, which can help those households build wealth. But then it ends up creating this loop where the family is no longer in need of the affordability that they've that has been made available to them. And recently, you've written a lot about the issues with repairs across New York rent-stabilized housing. That's after the 2019 rent law passed, right? Yeah. So this is another example of like the unintended effects of policy. And it reminds me a bit of what you describe in LA, right? Like every time you tweak regulations, you manipulate the market a bit and it creates like an even wonkier system. So in New York, the rent law really made it impossible for landlords to raise the rents on units, even if they made renovations that were worth tens of thousands of dollars, like $100,000 sort of like refurbish. They can recoup just a fraction of that investment through a rent increase. So more often than not, those repairs will leave them losing money. So there's no incentive to do the work, right, if you're going to be short cash in the long term. So what they do is they just end up leaving a lot of those units vacant because they say they're in too bad of shape to lease. Right. Renovations are like the easiest way to raise rents a lot of the time. Um, I know for my apartment that I'm currently in in L.A., it's a brand new renovation and they were charging a lot more for the ones that, you know, the paint was literally drying as we moved in as opposed to the ones that haven't been renovated since this apartment was built in the 1990s. In New York, how many units do we think are sitting vacant? Yeah, there are a number of estimates. I think the most recent one from the city pegged it at just shy of 40,000, which, you know, there's 2 million apartments in New York, give or take. So it's just, it's it's not that much of the total housing market, but it's not nothing either. Okay, so assuming cities like Boston, which are looking at rent control, understand the arguments against it, why is it still on the table? I think... The answer to that is twofold. So on one hand, cities point to rising costs, destroying communities, and argue that renters need that immediate relief. But more than that, an economist who looked at Boston's policy, which would tie rent hike caps to inflation, said it would actually be a good idea. And he was a detractor in the past. Here's Barry Bluestone. He's an economist and professor at Northeastern talking to CBS Boston about the city's move to eliminate rent control and how the mayor's new proposal has changed his mind about the policy. We eliminated it because it was really closing down future development of housing, which we so desperately needed. Northeastern professor Barry Bluestone has been studying rent control for decades. Over and over again, I had to comment on rent proposals, rent control proposals, and I had to say in the end, don't do this. This one I can fully support. The mayor's plan will cap rent hikes at 6%, but with poor inflation, that cap could become 10%. New developments in smaller properties like triple-deckers will be exempt for 15 years. It does 
make it possible to have a kind of rent uh, control which does not prohibit the addition of new housing, which we so much need. Okay, so the idea there is that because new development is exempt, it won't discourage the creation of housing. That's kind of similar to what California did um, when it enacted the Tenant Protection Act of 2019. It said these rent caps won't apply to anything built in the last 15 years, and that's going to be rolling. So right now it's, you know, everything dating back to 2008. That's right. But then the counter argument is what if the legislature or the city council goes back and cuts those caps down? Which they can definitely do. I mean, look at L.A., right? The city council went back six times to pass their most recent package. Yeah. Or just in general. I mean, 15 years is not that long to be able to recoup a return on investment. Who is going to put that kind of capital at risk for multifamily construction for a 15-year window? That's a landlord advocate in Boston speaking to CBS, which, you know, he's making a fair point. Like, developers just will not build. So is there an alternative to rent control? Yeah. I mean... But it's not a short-term fix. So it's basically what Governor Hochul has proposed in New York and what the White House came out with last May, and that's a plan to just build more housing. If there's enough supply to meet demand, the thought is that rents should remain affordable. Theoretically, yes. Theoretically, yes. And I know we're still short an incredible amount of units nationally, right? Like in the millions when you look at rentals and single-family homes. Yeah. And the critique around federal initiatives is they're just not moving forward with enough gusto. So here's Sharon one more time to finish us out. We were really encouraged and excited about the White House's announcement in June to put forward a housing supply action plan. Um, And it was really just an outline of mostly existing programs and and how to change them and maybe enhance them. The, the, The piece that I thought was most interesting was offering opportunities to incentivize state and local governments to open up their zoning laws to be more friendly to multifamily housing uh, by using federal dollars to incent them to do that. Um, that. That we think has real promise. Unfortunately, this Tenant Bill of Rights proposal has come out, but nothing has moved forward on the Housing Supply Action Plan. Um, so I don't think you can do one without really focusing on what the real fundamental problem is in supply. And frankly, supply takes a long time. Um, The impacts of that maybe are not as expedient for politicians um, as as trying to address uh, some issues around renter rights because they, they can get a quicker political win. But the hard work really comes in supply. And ultimately, that is the solution. Deconstruct airs every Monday wherever you get your podcasts, so subscribe now, or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have a guest or idea you'd like to pitch, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're talking about multifamily and the Sunbelt. Tune in then.